This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. I recognise in myself the capacity in certain circumstances for perhaps extreme and and violent behaviour. I think many of us share that. I am Maurice Reardon, editor of the Poetry Review. Today I'm talking with Steve Eli, who has some uh, wonderful poems in the current issue of the Review. I'm new to Steve's work myself. I just came across it last November, I think, when he sent me some poems to consider. Subsequently, I read Oswald's uh, Book of Hours, which was uh, Steve's first collection, came out last year. It's a very heady northern brew. <laughs> but we'll come, back to, we'll come back to Oswald's Hours, perhaps to the book itself, but just to say how it was shortlisted for the Forward Prize, and it's also nominated for the Ted Hughes Award. The outcome of that is pending as, as we speak. But we might begin, actually, with Ted Hughes, because I, I don't know much about you, Steve, but I know you come from Hughes country, as it were, the West Riding, Yorkshire. That's right, I do. Uh, I, was, I was brought up in a place called South Kirby, which is about 10 miles as the crow flies from uh, Hughes's second Yorkshire home, Mexborough. And I encountered Hughes on the O-level syllabus back in 1979. In a way, he was the, the, the poet who gave me permission to like poetry, I suppose, because looking back, that he wrote virile poetry about themes that young men uh, can empathise with, such as uh, violence and, uh, and nature. <laughs> and he wrote with a kind, of, uh, a kind of elemental power about elementally powerful things. So Hughes was with me from an early age, and uh, I think it's under Hughes's influence that I first started to write, which is probably in 1982, when I, when I was 17, when I began to write poems for the first time. So Hughes is uh, an obvious figure and a local figure. Are there other poets that are as important, equally important? Hughes was the kind of major influence, certainly on on me in my, my early days, which is basically the 1980s, but I stopped writing towards the end of the 1980s for reasons I'm still yet to fathom. When I picked up again in about 2003-2004, Hughes was still there, but the, uh, Yeats has always been there for me, and Yeats has been a big influence. The Bible, in the, the earlier translations, so particularly the King James mm. and, and Geneva, and I managed to get hold of a copy of the Wycliffe Bible a few years ago, so that those uh, feed me. Yeah, actually uh, have great, a copy uh, of the Wycliffe. It's not a pretty Bible, it's a, but it is a, a full translation. It's the, it's the full thing. So I think someone has done it as a labour of love, and it, I found it on the internet and bought it for a ridiculous price. In terms of you know contemporary poets, I think for the last five or six years I've been engaged with Geoffrey Hill and uh, Basil Ponting, Pound, Eliot, but also uh, John Montague, especially his book The Rough Field, which has been a major influence on my next book, uh, Englerland. And Oswald's Book of Ours was originally a section of that book, but it grew. Well, that's interesting you, you mentioned John Montague to me, anyway, because he's my old teacher. There you go. <laughs> when I was 17, or right. well, 19, perhaps, yeah, yeah, 19. So I can see how the rough field would, mm. would indeed appeal to you. And I can see the Geoffrey Hill, too, though you're much more raucous, let me say, than Hill, I think. I'm wondering then, because you have mentioned Montague, I'm wondering about David Jones, the Welsh poet and painter. Yeah, I, when I started to map out the the plan for Englerland, which is um, quite an ambitious mm. uh, book, it's uh, I call it a series of trajectories into England mm. and to and into Englishness, and it comes at England from a variety of unorthodox places. I looked for models, 
who has written large, ambitious books uh, about identity uh, yes. and history and politics and religion. I found Mercy in Hymns. Mm. I found uh, The Refield. I did uh, get hold of in parenthesis, but it didn't. It wasn't really what I was what mm. I was looking for in there. That's interesting. Uh, I checked out uh, Gillian Clark, the, the King of Britain's daughter, in mm. there, and and Heaney, the um, wintering out in, in North in particular. I think it was North Mercy and Hymns and the Rough Field that were. I'm not sure they directly influenced the piece, but they, they were the kind of uh, the spirits behind it, I, I think. Mm. Hill, Hill did influence it, and there's, there's a mm. poem in there called The Battle of Brunnenberg, which is basically a homage to Mercy and Hymns. Mm. It's you know, written in versets and 30 of them, and it's got the same kind of reflexive relationship with the past. I mean, I can tell from uh, Oswald's hours that yours is, let's say, an alternative England, the religious and political strife of... The 15th century is still going on, yeah, in a sense. Yeah, it is. And another major influence behind that is, probably it's Eamon Duffy. Um, yes. Eamon, Eamon Duffy's work about the um, you know the pre-Reformation Catholic Church, which I think has... Eamon of, Duffy is a historian, isn't that's he? That's right, yes, yeah. yeah. And, and his work famously, well, in my opinion, blew the myth that the reason why the English Church was reformed is because it was unpopular with everyone. The reverse was probably true. It was a kind of an, an elite coup d'etat, the Reformation in, mm. uh, in England, and that's probably why it took so long and was was never fully seen through. You know, the church was Protestant, but not it still is Protestant, but not Reformed. So it's more with the Lollards and Wycliffe and that's Langland, right. I guess. That, yes. That's right, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm I'm a Catholic, but I kind of uh, tongue in cheek on the back of the book, I, I, I call myself a Catholic in the tradition of uh, John Ball, who yes, yes. was probably. A proto Lollard. Um, there's a poem about John Ball, John Ball in the book. But yeah, that feeds it in there. And and you're right. I, I'm I'm still fighting some 500 year old battles in that, in that book. I think. <laughs> well, I think what you create is an amazing sense of historical energy. Even though, yes, you can see that these are old battles, but they're certainly current. And of course. Scargill comes in too, mm. in a very pertinent way, I think. Yeah? Mm. It served Scargill very well, actually. You know, It sort of underpinned, perhaps, the sort of spitting venom of his rhetoric yeah. in relation to certain people back in the, <laughs> yeah. in, in the 1980s. I don't know, Arthur, but I know mm. quite a lot of people who do. And mm. I'm, not, I'm not blind to you know, the, the issues around Arthur, his, you know, his personal vanity and his, 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 his stubbornness in there. Mm. But Arthur became a very significant figure for me when I was a young man. There's a po- another poem about Scargill in, uh, in England called One of Us. And 1981, Arthur was elected to uh, presidency of the National Union. It was on question time with Cecil Parkinson, who was then chair of the Conservative Party. And I was 16 watching this. And it amazed me to see someone, you know, from my background, someone who'd been a collier at Woolly Pit, to absolutely devastate Cecil Parkinson in argument. Yes. It was absolutely phenomenal. He mm. was he was outstanding. He had full mastery of his material. He was articulate. He was kind of assertive without being aggressive. And he made a big impact on me. And mm. at that age, I was um, quite a lot of, of uh, my friends were involved in radical politics in the anti-Nazi League, Rock Against Racism, some of us joined the Socialist Workers' Party. Yeah. And Scargill was a big figure for us yeah. in those days. And that's what both poems are about, I think. Yeah. What Arthur was, meant, and still stands for, I think. Yes, yeah. I mean, one of the things that really interested me about the poems was that this is a battle fought at the linguistic level as mm, well. Yeah. Your English 
hasn't yet been Anglo-Frenchified to some extent. Deliberately yeah. so. Yeah. I, I mean, mm. in Tony Harrison's V, there's a, an epigram from uh, Scargill at the beginning, and it said, uh, I can't remember the exact one, but mm. it says, my dad reads the dictionary every day, and the quote was about the power of words and about the importance of the mastery of language. What I do in Oswald's Book of Hours, and what I also do in Angloland in certain aspects of it, is to look at England in a 1500 years synoptically. So mm. everything exists together in terms of you know history and culture, but also in language. So I'll use modern English, English and Middle English and Old English. I'm by no means an expert in these languages. I crib it out and go back to the grammars and so on. But I want it to exist together. Yeah. That kind of linguistic mixing, which I think is really an impressive part of the book, and I can't wait for England to see how it develops. But it did remind me a little bit of Hugh McDermott, uh, the Scots poet, Scots language poet as well. Yeah. He sort of invented a sort of, well, as he called it, a, a sister language. Uh, I, shall, I shall have to go back to that. Yeah. I, I, every year I go with my dogs to South Uist, Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the you know the heartland of Scots Gaelic basically, mm-hmm. in the Catholic heartland of Scots Gaelic. In there, since I've been going up there, I've been reading lots of um, you know Gaelic poetry in translation, and obviously I've, I've encountered Solly McLean, mm-hmm. and and, and Solly McLean is becoming again along with with Hill and with with, with Eni and with Ted Hughes is becoming one of my poets if you like. Solly uh, McLean's brother Callum McLean, who was um, a folklorist mm-hmm. and. Uh, he, I think a pan-Gaelic nationalist spent a lot of time in in, in Ireland as well. Yes. He's actually buried just near where I, where I stay. That is feeding feeding my particular mix yes. as well. Though. Yeah, well, it's, it's quite interesting actually to come back to Oswald and to come back to the historical Oswald, who mm. was apparently educated. And I own it by Saint right. Columba, mm. a dairyman. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so he would have spoken Gaelic or Gaelic, but yeah. uh, probably Irish. Actually, yeah, he yeah. was mm. he was bilingual, and mm. he actually uh, acted as uh, Columba's interpreter when uh, when Christianity was brought to the Northumbrian English. Mm. Uh, Oswald was active in that role as, as an interpreter, and that's what attracted one of the things that attracted me to to Oswald was. It, was his kind of status as a kind of 7th century Renaissance man. Mm. You know, he was a warrior and he was a hunter and he was a king, mm. but he was also a, a patron of the Christian religion and he was also literate. I wouldn't exactly say literary, but he promoted, mm. you know, literacy in Gaelic and, and, and in English. Well, at that time, in, in the 7th century, the Irish monasteries would have been hugely civilizing mm. in, this, in this part of the world, it has to be said. <laughs> and they were exporting it, indeed, to Iona. Mm. Uh, and so Oswald was bringing it south, actually, wasn't he? Uh, he was, mm. because the dominant English king prior to Oswald was Penda, who was English but pagan. Mm. And he allied with the with the Welsh king Cadwalla. Cad- mm. Cadwalla's uh, attitude to the English was genocidal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, it was a marriage of convenience because they wanted yeah. to take out Oswald because he looked as though he was yeah. going to be- become, you know, the Bretwelder. And he did, yeah. briefly, but then Penda killed him. Yeah. <laughs> well, now you mentioned the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I should say that there's a lot of blood sport in your poems. Yes. And I think it's it's very visceral. Uh, but it also seems to work maybe as a kind of metaphor for rebellion or... Yeah. The, uh, is that right? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, partly, to paraphrase uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, to make a, pre- a preferential option for blood sports in the current climate in the liberal world is almost a kind of, you know, paint yourself a leper. I was involved in that as a young man uh, in the place where I was brought up. We spent all our time in the countryside looking for birds' nests and so on. You know, I had a terrier. Uh, we used to go for rabbiting. 
my friends of mine had lurchers and greyhounds, uh, friends had ferrets. We spent all our time hunting with rabbits and, and, and hares and so on. But I, I, I'd not done anything of that since I was 16. The dogs came back when Englerland kicked in. Oh, yes. The dogs are a parallel thing to the poetry. So I have a, I have a Potterdale Terrier and I have a Whippet. And we hunt for rabbits, you know, lamp occasionally. I'm, I'm by no means a kind of uh, dedicated every weekend. I think, uh, I think we might have to explain uh, lamp to the southerners. All right, the, the lamp. Maybe not the southerners. I think maybe no? the, maybe the, 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 there are lots of people. Uh, there are some good people in Kent and in, in Essex. So, right, yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a national thing, but I'm, mm. I'm aware of these people. Basically, it's uh, when you, you have a high-powered lamp, and you choose a, a wet and rainy and dark night, you uh, scan the fields, you lock onto a rabbit, and if the rabbit's not used to uh, being lamped, uh, then your dog will just run down the beam and pick it up. The rabbit will stay, and you, uh, a whippet, greyhound, a lurcher, it's a sight hound, it operates on what it can see. So it will just run down the beam, pick it up, and then you can dispatch it. Mm. Uh, and I know some people back in, in Yorkshire who are kind of absolute experts at this and who can, you know, Get several dozen rabbits in in, in a night uh, mm. on the on the on the right turf. I do it every now and then, mm. and I have to say, the last year or so, I've not been out quite as frequently mm. as uh, as I did when I uh, <laughs> when I first got back into it. <laughs> when I first started reliving yeah. my childhood, when, it, when yeah. I became a real enthusiast for it again. Yeah. Of course, the laws changed since I used to do it before, so you you were restricted to rabbits and rats now, so you can't have a pears or anything of that nature. The law or foxes. The law. Yes. Does the law come into it always? Well, wait, we're passing that, but... but. Are you wearing a wire? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I am thinking, you said yourself, you know, obviously uh, blood sports are not, um, you know, are not very popular no, in, in civil civilised company nowadays. And here you are talking to the Poetry Re- Review, Admittedly, you're talking to an Irishman. Nonetheless, here you are. And you haven't been to Buckingham Palace, I think, have you? No? I've never been to Buckingham Palace. No. Would no. you like to go? Um, if I was invited, I, I might consider it. Okay. All things being equal. <laughs> <laughs> we'll bear that in mind, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> More generally, I'm kind of thinking, do you have a sense of how your kind of, you know, your whole project, the whole England project, and it is a kind of visceral project, I think, how that kind of sits among your contemporaries or my contemporaries? Someone asked me this the other day and, and I didn't know what to say, uh, really, because I, it's not something that, that I think about. I think in terms of the poetry that I read in the magazines and collections that I, that I encounter, I think it's, it's pretty unusual, I would mm. say. It's, it kind of seems to be of a different tenor, a different temperament. I wouldn't like to go beyond that to make any mm. kind of you know uh, great claims for uniqueness because the minute you do that you find that, that there is someone else doing doing similar things and also it's a little bit I don't know it's a bit egotistical to to, to make that, that that type of mm. type of claim but I am aware of, of a difference in that and I am aware also that it sometimes can back up audiences you know I've mm. I've, 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 I've done readings where everything's been going well and then a certain poem will will cause a ripple mm. and it's because. It's because of people's preconceptions, people's uh, the ideologies that people bring in, the, the assumptions that they bring into it. I write about things beyond my own experience. I don't think I'm uh, there's a lyric side to me, mm, but indeed, but, uh, but I'm not I, I'm not predominantly a lyric poet. Although the, the book that I'm writing at the moment, there are there, there are some more traditional lyrics in there. I think. Well, that brings us actually, I think, to the poems in the review. Would you care to? 
perhaps introduce it a little bit and read a poem for us from the selection in the review. This is a book that I've actually completed now. The, the, the working title of the book is Bloody, Proud and Murderous Men, Adulterers and Enemies of God, which is a quotation uh, from yeah. uh, Gildas uh, describing the English. The book is about, essentially, if you, in a tagline, it's about violence and the irrational and the human capacity for all those things. So there's a play in there which is called The Coronation of the Virgin, which encapsulates within itself some of the most more irrational of Christian beliefs, deliberately so. And there's a a sequence of 27 poems which I call Werewolf, which is uh, about genocide. I think the reason why I'm exploring these is because I recognise in myself, not because I'm a particularly bad person, but because I am a human, I recognise in myself, the capacity in certain circumstances for perhaps extreme and and violent behaviour. I think many of us share that, and perhaps no more was that uh, exemplified uh, than in 1994 in Rwanda, when uh, the most horrific and intense of all genocides took place in six weeks. A million people hacked to death by machetes within six weeks, and a whole population was effectively mobilised to do that. It wasn't a small cadre of SS equivalents. It was virtually the whole Hutu population participated in an attempt to wipe the whole Tutsi population off the, off the face of the earth. Uh, for those six weeks, normal life was suspended and work became for the Hutu hunting Tutsi in the countryside. And this is a poem about that. Uh, it's a poem called Work. Cutting in the cane fields or hacking back scrub, it was something we were used to. After all, we were farmers. We'd gather every morning before setting out, then cutting all day in the jungle and marshes. We'd come back exhausted, well worthy of beer and brochettes. Our wives turned their backs in bed. In those days was beef and rib steak in plenty. We bore the knives ourselves, slaughtering, jointing. We feasted like the elegant kings, to whom were given such bloody instructions, they jumped to the life to come. Terrible, but terrific. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Morris. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit www.poetrysociety.org.uk.